and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. The napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. You know, we gather today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in order to really fully comprehend and really understand and appreciate the resurrection, I think it's important that we get to know Jesus just a little bit. You know, if I would borrow from the immortal words of the officers who were detailed at one point to capture the Lord and take him into custody, I would say with them, the officers answered, never a man spake like this man. There's never been a man that spoke like this man. Never has there been a character that's come across the pages of history that's made the impact and truly impacted our world the way he did. The truth is that no man ever lived, no man loved, no man led like this man either. I think about him living a sinless life. He lived a sinless life. The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill the law. I don't know about you, but probably growing up, you were in a Sunday school class at some point, or maybe you heard somebody talk about something called the Ten Commandments. When we think about those commandments, we know thou shalt not, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not. And every one of us in this room has to admit wholeheartedly that there is at least one, if not many, that we have personally transgressed. There's no way that you or I could ever fulfill the law. There's no way that you or I could ever keep the law. There's no way we could live a sinless, perfect life and fulfilling the law that God had put there on Mount Sinai and gave to the children of Israel. But Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ lived and Jesus Christ kept the law and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled that law. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ. Oh, completely tempted. Oh, definitely. Oh, man. Oh, God. And he knew what temptation was, but he, the Bible says, was without sin. We read in 1 Peter, it says, For even here in two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 
Oh, no man ever lived like this man. No man ever lived like Jesus, sinlessly. Not only that, but no man ever loved like he loved, unconditionally. Oh, I know we talk about unconditional love. I know we talk to our family, oh, I love you with an unconditional love. But may I say that many times in our humanness, we may fully intend to do so, but it is much more difficult than we might lead on. Maybe in this situation, we are quite content to be unconditional in our love. But then on another hand, if you hurt someone I love, if you take the life of someone I love, if you do something drastic or nasty or mean to someone I love, that's unforgiving. And so in reality, we're not loving unconditionally. I couldn't love you. You're my enemy. But Jesus Christ, he didn't see things that way. He loved unconditionally. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, we learned that, first of all, he is no respecter of persons. Then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look upon one race or creed or color. He doesn't look upon one gender or not. He looks at all of us equally and he says, I respect no one, no group, no people more than the other. I love everybody. I love the world. When one considers the awful treatment unleashed upon the Lord, it's really unbelievable to think that he would respond as he did. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. To think of the blood that was shed through the years and the centuries, the ends of time, by those that claim to even be religious, those that claim to know God. And yet there Jesus stands there before Jerusalem, overlooking the city, and he cries out and he says, Listen, I know the blood you've shed. I know how you've responded and treated my prophets. And yet, I love you. I want to draw you unto myself. Unconditional love. Even in his death, he cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No man ever loved like Jesus unconditionally. Not only that, but no man ever led like he led. We can write books on leadership and we can talk about how a person must be out front and lead, but no one's ever led like him unselfishly. Unselfish to a fault. He came to serve. He came as a servant, the Bible says. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is named Emmanuel, God with us. The very creator God came to this earth and he took his place among fallen men. And yet Jesus Christ was a servant. After he poureth water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel whereupon he was girded. He goes on to say, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. What a leader he was. A humble leader. A compassionate leader. A hands-on leader. We see an example of a servant because that's what he came to do in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It's an amazing thing to think that the Creator God would come to earth among the fallen man that He created and still allow them to treat Him the way they did. 
And he says, I come to serve. I come to help. I come to meet the needs. I come even to be abused if necessary so that you can recognize and see and understand my infinite love. No one ever lived like Jesus. The Bible says, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus Christ. Pleasing the Heavenly Father at all costs. Putting himself second to the Father's will so that you and I could one day rejoice together with him. No man ever lived like Jesus, but may I say today, no man ever died like Jesus. Although he went about doing good and fulfilling the will of the Father in heaven, although he lived a sinless, perfect life, although he was the epitome of purity, he found himself at the mercy of a jealous committee and a jeering crowd. A crowd crying, Crucify him. Crucify him. We'll take the murderer Barabbas, but kill him. Kill him. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. They stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. When they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. So to Calvary he went like a lamb to the slaughter, deserving no harm whatsoever, have doing, done nothing to deserve this kind of treatment. The Lord Jesus Christ finds himself carrying his own cross, the very cross he created. And there to Golgotha they came and arrived. Being placed on the ground, they nailed his hands to a cross. And there they nailed his feet. And between heaven and earth, they raised him. There he hung, bearing your sin and mine. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our, of our, of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I think it's important as we read through that passage to note some things. He was smitten. He was stricken. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastened. God himself who earlier in that book was called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Jesus who would come, Messiah, God in flesh. The Bible now says 
He's being stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, and chastened. Why? For our transgressions. For our iniquities. See, no one else could remove the sin stain that exists in every single human heart. He alone bare the sin of the world. Only Jesus Christ could offer us an escape from our sin through the precious blood. His perfect blood. The perfect sacrifice offered to a perfect God on behalf of an imperfect people. But that was not enough. It's not enough that he died on the cross. It's not enough that he simply went on behalf of the world and gave himself. It's not enough that he laid on that ground and allowed them to nail his hands and feet and suffer the bludgeoning, the beating, the mocking. It's not enough. It wasn't enough. See, Jesus had made a promise. He promised to rise again. In Mark chapter 9, verse 31, while speaking to his disciples, he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And now we arrive at our passage. Jesus Christ is now dead, or so they believe. And in the grave he is, and there he seemed to remain. A great stone rolled before the mouth of the sepulcher. A guard, Roman guard, centurion, standing guard before that stone, ensuring that no one could penetrate it, no one could access it, except they permit it. Three days, three nights followed his sacrificial death. His credentials would be confirmed or they would be crushed in three days and three nights. If he rose again, then everything he had claimed to be was true. And evidently he possessed the very power he needed to save mankind. If he didn't rise, then he was a mere fake, a phony, an imposter. But may I say to you that we read in the book of John chapter 20 verse 1, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, she came to a conclusion, did she not? They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. At this point, Mary is convinced and concerned that they had stolen the body, that they had removed the body, that they'd moved the body, that the authorities have done something with the body of Jesus. Where is he? What have they done with him? But the Bible doesn't stop there. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple, that other disciple is none other than John himself. You know John, the one who's laid his head upon the breast of Jesus during the Last Supper. John, who was the beloved disciple. 
And there Peter and John, according to the passage, so they ran together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter. Someone says, why in the world? How did that happen? Because Peter was old. John was young. It had been a long time ago that I could have beat my son running. Right now I'm lucky to walk fast. I can only imagine Peter, he's running, but then all of a sudden John just shoots on past him right at the end and says, uh-uh, I'm getting there first. The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher and he stooped down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. John standing on, at the mouth of that sepulcher. John looking and gazing in, trying to capture everything that he could see, look at all the evidence possible. And Peter kind of zooms past him and goes right on in. Doesn't even stop. And the Bible says, Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. The body was gone. Of that there was no doubt. None at all. The body was gone. But it was as though there was a a form of a dead man that was preserved. There were those grave clothes laid, as though the body of Jesus simply vanished. They were still intact. They were still lying there. Who could make sense of that? Who would go to all that trouble? Who would come and take or move or remove the body from the tomb, but unravel, unwrap, or somehow put all the grave claws back in place? Why? If the Roman soldiers were content to move the body, if somehow they had come up with another scheme or plan, they could have simply moved the body. But why unravel? Why unwrap? Why give the impression of a resurrection? Makes no sense. Unbelievers have concocted alternate themes and theories to try to discount the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some say that Christ didn't really die, that he simply swooned on the cross, that he was in a catatonic state, if you will, that somehow he appeared to be lifeless, but he was not without life. And there they placed him in the tomb. And while in the tomb, he recovered. While later on, he escaped into the night and later showed himself to be alive. That's one of the theories. The disciples were said to have possibly stolen the body and then make up a lie that Christ raised from the dead based upon the fact that there was an empty tomb. Some said that the women who came to the tomb were somewhat expecting or believing that there would be a resurrection. Therefore, they had a hallucination and just simply were tricked into believing that Christ had risen. 
I say to you today that none of those really hold any water. First of all, I don't understand why Christ never really died. How in the world that blood and water came forth after the spear entered his side? I don't understand why seasoned veterans of the the Roman army could not tell whether or not he truly was alive or dead. They had murdered and killed many on crosses. Therefore, there'd be no reason why they couldn't tell. Oh, the other two, they broke their legs so that they would ultimately gasp for breath and die. But Jesus was already dead. And then the spear in the side, just to make sure. Oh, no. Jesus was in no catatonic state. Jesus was as dead as you and I would be dead. And then the thought that the disciples had stolen the body from these seasoned veteran soldiers again, a guard being placed there for the express purpose of ensuring that the disciples could not take the body and propagate a falsehood. The very soldiers who they could not protect Jesus from just three nights earlier, now all of a sudden, they create this, con- this scheme, they concoct this, uh, this, this, this thought, let's steal his body, let's pretend that he's really risen from the dead. I would like to ask you a question. I know that many have died on behalf of spiritual leaders through the history, but I have a hard time believing that they would have stole the body and died for a lie. John followed Peter. Peter had gone into the tomb. John simply looking around the corner Gazing in. But the Bible tells us that ultimately John too came closer. John went in. And the Bible tells us that John saw. He took in the items that cried out for the incredible but inescapable conclusion. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had risen right through the grave clothes. That must be it. That's the only thing I can think John would have thought to himself. All the clues pointed to the conclusion. Then and there, then and there, on the spot, in the tomb, the Bible says he saw and he believed. He believed. Then and there he believed. Oh, it was incredibly, gloriously true. Jesus was alive. He was no longer dead. He had gone to a cross and he had taken the place of all mankind. He had suffered the bludgeoning, the beating, the mocking, the the sinful things that man had done to him. Oh, because mankind could not get to heaven. Mankind could not be reconciled to God. Mankind could not have their sin dealt with. He alone could pay the price. His blood alone could ultimately wash our sin away. And he lives John stood outside the tomb wondering. But he got closer. And he went in. What did he see? (laughs) He saw those linen clothes lying and the napkin about his head folded just like Peter had. Here's my question tonight, this morning I should say. Won't you come closer? Won't you take a look at the evidence this morning? I believe if you do come closer, if you do examine the evidence, you will come to the same conclusion that John did. 
Then went in also that other disciple. Can someone go out there, please, and help with that baby? And maybe get her down in the nursery so we're not interrupted here. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. I believe you will come to the same conclusion. I'm convinced that if you will step inside the tomb, if you'll see those grave clothes lying, if you'll look at that napkin folded in a corner, if you'll realize and recognize that it was not the, the, the ability of a disciple or someone to steal a body, it was literally the power of God that resurrected Jesus Christ. I believe, just like John, you too will believe. I read of a centurion at the cross of Christ who also came closer and saw. And what was the result? And when the centurion would stood over against him, there Christ on Calvary, hanging between heaven and earth, the sacrifice of fall for fallen man, God needing a propitiation, God requiring someone to live a sinless, perfect life. Only God could do that. And Jesus hung there and that centurion got close enough to the Savior. He got close enough to Jesus. He rubbed shoulders with Christ. And when he did, the Bible says, he stated truly this man was the Son of God. Oh, I have no doubt now who he was. I may have been taught that he wasn't. I may have been told that he was a folk, a phony, that he was a fraud. But I know I got close enough to him. I seen with my own eyes. I heard with my own ears. He lives today. He lives. He's alive. We do not serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior. This morning, something is missing in your life if you don't know Jesus Christ. There's an emptiness, there's a void that exists in all humanity. And there is a world that is spending a lifetime trying to fill that void. It's being filled with alcohol and drugs, immorality and materialism, activity and leisure. It's being filled with all kinds of things. But nothing, nothing can truly and eternally fill that void but Jesus Christ. Will you get closer this morning? Will you get closer and step inside the tomb? And truly take a look at the evidence? Will you see the... the, the linen lying? Will you recognize the napkin folded? Will you understand that no one could have concocted this plan, this scheme? It was of God. Jesus Christ was God in flesh. He was Messiah. He was the, the one who could pay the price for sin. No other way, no other option. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How important is this resurrection? Hey, listen, it's as important as this. One, his credentials depended on it. 
The Bible says in Romans 1.4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. No resurrection. And he was no more the only begotten Son than you and I are. He had no more power than any other man because he could not raise from the dead as he said. But may I say on that Easter morning, he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Because he was no longer there. Oh, his credentials are sure. He is indeed who he claimed to be. And only his precious blood can wash your sin away. Only his sacrifice can complete and fill you. But not only his credentials depended on it, but our conversion depends on it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a live hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a lively hope, a living hope. Why? How? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other way. Again, it wasn't enough that he simply died and shed his blood. But thank God it was precious blood. Thank God it was righteous blood. Thank God it was perfect blood. And it was blood that could cover my sin and cover your sin. We're all sinners and we need the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of our Lord. But alone, just the sacrifice isn't enough. He had to rise again. And in doing so, he proved to all humanity that he has the authority to wash your sin away and save you and give you life everlasting even as he now lives forever. He came out of that grave. Death could not hold him there. The chains of death could not keep him. Up from the grave he rose. Boy, is he alive. And may I say today, we need to trust him and receive him today. We need Christ in our life. If we want our sin to be forgiven, if we want the hope of heaven and an eternity with God, will you come closer today? Will you look inside the tomb and decide to take a step in? And if you too will see what John saw, you too will believe. He rose again. And he is the only way, truth, and life. Won't you come to him? Won't you receive him today? That's why you came. That's why God put you here. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if there's never been a time when you received him into your life, you are not here by accident or chance. God in heaven looked over the portals of heaven and saw your great need. And he gave us this wonderful Bible full of truth that we could proclaim it and preach it and teach it to a world that's lost without Christ, but to a world that he loved, a world that he lived for, a world that he died for, a world that he rose for. Let's get closer. And instead of looking around the corner at Jesus, let's step into the tomb. Let's see with our own spiritual eyes and believe that Jesus 
is God in flesh. That he is the savior of the world. And that he alone can wash my sin away and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he can fill that void that exists in my heart. And I take him and receive him and give him authority in my life to do as he chooses. May God help us to get closer to see and believe this morning. Won't you trust him today? Receive him if you haven't already. He died for you because he loves you that much. And only he can wash your sin away. Father, we come to you.